I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Ingo Lambrecht, a clinical psychologist living and working in Auckland, New Zealand. He's also been trained and graduated as a Sangoma, a South African shaman. He's published and presented widely on the complex relationship between shamanism and psychoanalysis. He works extensively with the Maori at Maori Mental Health Service in Auckland. You may read a piece that Dr. Lambrecht and I wrote together on psychoanalytic and ritual spaces as transitional spaces in the Fenris Wolf Volume 8, available from Trapart Books. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T books. You may also read Dr. Lambrecht's presentation from the Psychoanalysis Art and Occult Conference held in London in 2016 in the Fenris Wolf Volume 9, also available from Trapart Books. Dr. Lambrecht is currently editing a volume on culture and psychosis. For more, I've also linked to a keynote he gave at a recent ISPS international event, the International Society for Psychological and Social Approaches to Psychosis. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, available from Trapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You may also find this episode at YouTube at Trapart Film's YouTube channel. Just search for Trapart Film or Rendering Unconscious Podcast at YouTube. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, and sign up for my newsletter on the contact page to stay abreast of all upcoming events. You can also visit the Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org. And follow me at Instagram and Twitter at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Thank you so much for listening to Rendering Unconscious podcast and for your support. You can support the podcast at our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23carl. Your support is so appreciated. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon patrons. The sun is setting, whereas it here it is rising. I just saw the beautiful uh, strip of orange rising as I was cycling into the hospital and um, seeing it rise in the darkness and that's uh, exquisite. So it's lovely to hear that it's sitting on your side. Yeah, I see it here setting now. It's perfect. <laughs> Wonderful. What a strange thing to talk across the world. It's mm. so cool. <clears throat> and especially how it's in real time and like there's no lag or anything. It's amazing. Phenomenal. Yeah. And I suppose that's exactly what we often are curious about, isn't it? These spaces that are kind of liminal, strange and time-wise get lost in altered states of, um, of being. So that's why we got connected in a way, didn't we? We got connected through our interest in consciousness and, and psychoanalysis and how we would talk. I do not quite, I do recall us I think it was Iceland where we met. Would that be fair? Yep. 
Yes, and um, I remember us walking along those streets and talking about those uh, kind of strange experiences of psychedelics and trance states and how that might relate to the healing space. And as we talked about how we both thought that actually there's a lot of overlap between shamanic states and the psychoanalytic state, how a certain stillness needs to occur in the therapist and in the shaman to access something. And yeah, so I remember how um, you got that quite quickly, whereas others might were puzzled, but you just immediately clicked onto it. And, I, and then we thought, yeah, we might talk again. And I thought, yeah, let's see. And this has been true for many years, hasn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, we so. did the conference in Iceland was 2014. That's correct, yes. And um, I know I was talking about, um, I think, yes, psychodynamic um, stuff together with shamanic uh, trance states and how that would unfold. And, <clears throat> and also my work with uh, in, in South Africa and in New Zealand with indigenous people, the Maori. <clears throat> and I remember you would be able to engage with me, which suggested to me that you yourself had a rich um, form of knowledge or, and or experience around this area, thinking a bit differently, together with, I think, your poetry and your scissor work, you know, of being able to disengage language in a, in a certain way and you know, the scissor is for me a form of, of, of cutting and shifting and dissociating. And it made me wonder what you do with poetry is what shamans do with their, with their mind. Shifting the mind is the aim. So I just thought your, you know, your poetry was part of, of this process. I love it. Now I remember you spoke on the panel about um, psychosis. And I yeah. remember, first of all, that you spoke about Israel Regardi, who I'd never heard anyone talk about him at a psychoanalytic conference. And I was like, ooh, who is this guy? <laughs> and then yeah. also, I loved how you talked about a specific case and, and how you like went through like a ritual with them to help them like grieve their parents or something like went to a yes. lake and yes. um yes. and how some yes. some of the analysts were so like appalled like oh you can't like leave the session everything has to be done in language in the session mm. in this like symbolic mm. abstract way as if like mm. rituals don't have a purpose and as if people don't like do real actions to like work through yes. material in their lives <laughs> yeah i mean i you know, and I think what's always so difficult when you bring, a, a, you know, a story to an, a conference and you're talking for half an hour, it's hard to bring across that you've been working with a person for 18 months, you know, so when this person came to me that I talked about, I think if it is the right person, um, you know, I had been working for 18 months to make sense of their discourse, you know, they were just speaking and we slowly unpacked it. And he began to realize that some of the circus was actually related to the loss of land due to colonization four generations ago. You know, that that created a poverty, which in turn created abusive family dynamics and substance abuse. And four generations, he is mad. And yet the madness made sense politically and spiritually that there was a connection. And so we then would begin to work with it. But what I think was important there is that I was allowed to symbolically and ritually engage the person in a um, in the cemetery, what's called an uru, uh, where the person could sit with the reality that two storks suddenly were flying over the grave as he stood at his mother's grave. And we could symbolically link the synchronistic events. And, you know, the next, the next day he talked to me about a dream he had, which revealed significant um, childhood or infant abandonment. He suddenly had a dream of being an infant and it unraveled stories and other parts we had not seen. So, I also want to hold that this was done very mindfully, carefully, in collaboration 
with my patient, but also with the Komatwa, the elder that I was working with. So it was a very careful process that we engaged and planned carefully weeks ahead. And I think you would appreciate the power of rituals and symbolization. And I think for, for him, the healing came and being able to not only enact symbols with awareness, so it isn't just an unconscious enactment, but, a, but, an, but an interpreted enactment as it happens. That why is that so different to dream work? You know, we are alive in our dreams. Why is life not also valued as a dream and interpreted as a dream? And I think that's where other cultures are far more, have the ability to symbolize powerfully in seeing their life as worthy of interpretation. So if two storks fly over my mother's grave at the very point I visited it for, you know, I know it's seen as coincident, but those two storks were actually crossed our car 10 miles before it gets, you know, strange. And then the third time as we're leaving, they land and quite close by and watch. And, you know, so there are things that start happening that are meaningful for the person in life as dreams are meaningful. So it's, it's something that I appreciated in working with um, within a Maori mental and indigenous mental health setting, where it is officially accepted that mental health requires an integration of the body, the fauna or family, which also means social system, political systems, the mind, but also the spirit. And so if I had a client who spoke about ancestors, I could open it up with discernment and not claim they are hallucinating. The psychiatrist might be worried, but maybe maybe due to my own shamanic training, I thought, let's see if those voices are useful. And if they're not, okay, we'll, yeah, we'll do something. But if they are, how do we want to work with them? And that was special about working in that service, that I could do that with my clients. And I suppose in private, it's easier to do, but it's not so easy to talk about that. And um, so funnily enough, talking about it within an indigenous framework makes it possible, but talking about it in psychoanalytic white circles, difficult. Yeah, but I think I'm hoping that that'll be part of this like decolonial process um, because that's just like one of the things like, so I'm from Miami and, and in Miami when I was being trained as a psychologist, you know, they actually said like, okay, you know, there's a lot of people from Cuba and Haiti in Miami. So they said, okay, if your patient is Cuban or Haiti and they talk about talking to a, a grandmother or grandfather or ancestor, then it's okay because it's in a cultural context. But if they're like yeah. a white person talking about it, then they need to go to the hospital because they're crazy. They actually taught us yeah. that and it's like, that, that's not okay either. You know? <laughs> exactly. You know, why is it okay that if I'm in London, uh, you know, write a paper or talk on projective identification amongst clients or other psychoanalysts who talk about it, somehow getting through the room into my body as a therapist or analyst and feel it, but if I talk about telepathy, oh, no, that's not okay. You know, so there's this kind of strange epistemological even um, inability to challenge the edges of reality and that other cultures may have other, um, you know, um, vantage points from which reality is viewed. And that maybe others are also more skillful about consciousness. You know, the East has incredible understanding of meditative levels or you know states of consciousness and so do other cultures but we are pretty monophasic the waking consciousness is the only acceptable one you know whereas others are polyphasic in other words other states of consciousness have equal value or validity or even valence and they can have truths that might be valuable but in our society Dream is not valued the same as waking consciousness. And so I think psychoanalysis is sadly trapped by that sometimes. Um, not at all, of course, but, um, and I think 
the only reason I can sometimes speak at psychodynamics because there is a postmodern respect for other cultures. <laughs> you know, it's it's a right thing, but it it might have stopped. But I think or hope that one day it might undermine the limited view of reality within the the Western uh, culture. Maybe you know. I that's... hope so. That's what I'm working on. <laughs> <laughs> you are indeed. That's what we're I working on right are. now. I love that you phrased it as like interpreting their life just as you interpreted dreams, like seeing these things symbolically. Yeah. And I never understand the argument of like, oh, but that's not really happening. You're just making meaning. Yes. And it's like, if that's like the biggest argument against it, like what kind of argument is that? So what, you know, no. if it's useful yeah. for the person and they make meaning and it's able to help them like shift something yeah. in their lives and like, who cares? Exactly. And I think this is also why when I work with people who struggle with what is called like all hearing voices, it's difficult, you know, they, I think the, the, the catchphrase of psychoschizophrenia is so broad that it sounds to me not helpful as a clinician. There are people who have, who hear voices and there are people who have very strong belief systems um, that are very painful and terrorizing and anxiety are very, you know, and, and horrible and, and how, we could begin to make meaning of that instead of just claiming it's unreal, therefore not worthy. You know, so it seems to me that if I listen carefully, I seem to be able to, together with a person, find value in this and meaning in this um, that I think may be much more helpful to bring in those parts that have been lost. And that's an ancient tradition, of course, you know, to bring in the splinter souls that we have lost, that shamans always are flying and trying to get back to think of the Amazonian um, ayahuasca um, shamans who fly off and, and find the lost parts of souls. Um, also in Africa, there's a part um, where there's a sense that they are lost souls. But parts of ourselves but you know and, and I think that's where the um I mean I don't want to idealize the shamanic tradition either I think there's sometimes my experience sometimes has been equally that <clears throat> uh sometimes quite simplistic stuff would have black and white thinking it's all demons or it's all angels kind of thing so I I equally uh, struggle with that um the over-interpretation, and that is the shadow side of symbolizing everything, is how do you not create a slippery slope into a, um, yeah, a world where everything is interpreted the way you want it? So there's this kind of challenge. That's a good point. Or feeling like things are being done to you and like there's, everything's outside of your control. Yeah. It's a beautiful point. You know, that's something that <clears throat> the externalization of the inner to the outer becomes so strong that <clears throat> you become victimized by everything. And, and that is, yeah, so that's what I appreciate about, appreciate about psychoanalysis, that it makes me wonder what are my process, what's my part, and where are, where are the conflicts within me that might be systemically related to everything. And has great value to unpack and take responsibility for. So I must say that I value that about. So for me, the psychoanalysis psych as a method and as an acknowledgement of the unconscious and the energy with it, uh, psychic energy, I love that part. I find it so valuable. It's the materialistic epistemological view that I find is a bit of a pity. Uh, we don't need it to be involved in psychoanalysis or psychodynamic therapy. You know, so. I agree. And I don't like when, when uh, analysts take uh, other analyst theory as like dogma. Well, like so-and-so said this, it has to be this way. I like much more eclectic view of like taking from different theorists. Yeah. Yeah. Different people, because that could change over time or change yeah same person over time yeah i i must say i i agree with you on that and i suppose that's where um i've noticed also something curious is that um the sh the many shamans i met in different traditions equally 
struggle with sharing their worldview with the people around them. You know, there is a loneliness among shamans. And it's equally for our profession as, you know, either psychologists or therapists or psychoanalysts or psych, is it's a very lonely, odd profession, you know, that you can't, you know, you like your clients and you can't just have a cup of coffee with them. You know, it's just a crazy world. You're connected, but you cannot meet in the in the other world. And in the shamanic world, there's something similar, is that they often, I think, also sit on the fringes of idealization and denigration of being this great healer, but all this very evil being, this cursing being. And Equally so, shamans will often talk to other shamans and feel more at home amongst other shamans in their own village, because other shamans get the kind of edge places that we, we, uh, we position ourselves in. And that I think is true, and, sh and I think psychoanalysts and shamans or, or therapists share that, um, that we are in a liminal space when we work with people. And we need to protect it through privacy, confidentiality, and not engaging in everyday life with with them. Uh, something about that. Yeah, that transitional space, and also reminds me of like the transference, like the the people clients yeah. or the shaman's clients are going to have transference. Like you're going to be able to fix everything for me, or if you don't, like yeah. you're the worst. I hate you. <laughs> you're cursing. Exactly. Me. You know. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. There is an interesting tradition um, in the South African uh, tradition of the Zangoma, where and, and in the 30s, when people would go to a doctor, they'd, they'd sit very quietly and the doctor would ask, well, what's wrong with you? They says, no, you need to tell me. And the white doctor would say, what do you mean? You tell you here, what's your problem? What do you want to know? And, and in the Zangoma tradition, when you walk into the hut and sit on the um, on the ground opposite your client, they will be absolutely silent. They'll roll up the money and put it under the impala or antelope skin. And then you throw the bones. You have to tell your client what's wrong. So that is actually a form of verification and checking out how good the shaman is. Because if you can't say what is wrong with a person, you would, wouldn't even know what the cure is. So there's this kind of interesting testing that comes by waiting silently and then seeing what comes up in the divination. And your reading of that will need to trigger or be to be true to what a, who the person is sitting. So. Um, and they will then just say siavuma, which means I agree, and then that's siavuma, or they go quiet, which always is trouble. Um, so I remember this one training I had where my, my teacher would bring me in and I was pretty terrified because I wasn't as yet aware of all the interconnections with my divination tool. And I saw this configuration, uh, symbolic configuration that I went, but it, yeah, I don't know why she said, but there's something good that's happened to her. You know, and he said, yes, that's correct. Something about work and something good. He says, yes, she got a promotion. Excellent. So I'm going, why is she here? And he says, no, she's here because she's worried about the jealousy of other people. And she wants a medicine to, to protect her against jealousy of others. So this was very helpful for me that not people don't only come to shame because it's bad or difficult, but also because they've been very successful. And the envy is a very real dynamic um, that I wasn't so aware of, but they've helped me to become aware of more. So, you know, so it's a very different approach. So there's verification. We've got our certificates, but it's um, the power also lies with the client to see whether we are good enough. How did you become interested in single modes in the first place? Uh, well, Actually, the interesting thing about becoming a Zangoma, you don't choose it, the ancestors do. And this is how it worked for me, is that this must have been 82 or something. Um, I There was a course on African psychology, which a, a psychology lecturer was providing. And he said, if you do want to have an experience of a Zangoma reading the bones or using divination to read your your story 
you know, why don't you come and see him on, I don't know when, which day it was, was it a Thursday or during the week you could go in? And I thought, oh, that would be interesting because I was already interested. Well, you know, you you heard from my reference with Israel Regardi. I was reading Israel Regardi already then, and, you know, just interested in these altered states. And so I went to see him. I was absolutely quiet, sat down. And he said, oh, and did some reading, got some things right. And then I, he says, oh, you, you need to become a healer. And I thought, yeah, okay, it's true. I want to become a psychologist. That's a healer. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, no, 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 you need to become a psychologist. I said, what? <laughs> Are you sure? And uh, he says, no, no, you need to become a psychologist. Now, at that time in the 80s, the apartheid system had closed off townships. Police were, you know, creating these cordons. And I first had my doubts because... I, um, at that time, nowadays it's far more popular, you have whites and gormers, but at that time I'd never heard of that. I thought, how would this be possible? So I thought, well, why not? He says, why don't you come to Soweto? And, um, and he gave me a dress, um, which I had never been to. At that time, it was really, um, you know, it was a battlefield. This was after 1976 with the Soweto riots. And still there were battles between police. So I'm driving with my little black uh, Volkswagen Beetle rattling around. And then I realized there are no street signs. I found out later that most street signs were taken down and used as washing um, pole, you know, poles to, to hang up washing in between <laughs> as a form of resistance as well, I suppose. So... I don't know how I found him. I think, I, you know, something happened. But I then was um, initially told me that the tradition is this, is that your ancestors choose you. You often go through an illness, an initiation illness, and the ancestors push you and you, the bones are red or the diviner, and they will tell you whether you need to train as a healer. And in many traditions all over the world, it is seldom a, you know, I'm rocking up and feel like I'd like to become a shaman. That's not how it works. And in fact, to use a psychodynamic or psychoanalytic term, there's often huge resistance. And this resistance is well known. You know, he would look, he says, yeah, yeah, I know you don't feel like doing this because I had my doubts. I said, look, are you serious? You know, I'm just 20, 21, whatever you were, um, you sitting in Soweto, is this real? He says, no, no, come on the weekends and, and we'll get going. And so I decided to do this and my train started. Um, and then I, it was, became really difficult, more and more difficult, 83, to get into Soweto. I struggled to get in. I had no telephone. There were no cell phones. Um, the telephone lines didn't work. Um, I just couldn't get through certain cordons. And what happened then is that we lost contact because the South African army was calling up foreign or permanent residents, <coughs> citizens, or well, permanent resident people who were from other countries. So I'm German. So I, they were suddenly saying anyone under 25 would have to serve in the military. So I refused. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, because I'm not going to be part of a civil war. <clears throat> so I finished my master's in comparative literature, where funnily enough, we were reading Freud and Marx, and you know, it was great. But once I finished that, I went to Germany, and on Mandela's release, I returned. Um, and that allowed, then I wouldn't be conscripted to the army, which I was happy about. And then I carried on doing psychology, got into a clinical program, but I'd lost touch with my teacher, you know. I, and um, I then did a PhD. Um, and in that, I was going to look at the, which I did, on the altered states or the trans states of Zangomas, but more their experience of how to enter it, the technology of, of accessing these states and how that occurs. And funnily enough, the shamans were incredibly open about that. They said, oh, these are questions we've never wondered about, but they would have never given me the recipes for healing or the muti or the, the medicine, because that is seen as very 
important for making money because you have the special mixtures and all of that. So that's something they wouldn't share. But how they entered into transit, they were very open and curious. And then one day, as Angoma recognized me from, you know, about yeah, 10 years before then or something about when I was a young shaman. And he says, I know you and I know where your teacher is. And so we reconnected and I completed my graduation. And, okay. um, and the graduation is a tough thing because it's not just you just do three years of training. It's usually about two, three years. But you actually have to uh, find objects that are hidden. So we, I decided not to have it in a township. I wanted to go into the country a bit more. Um, so I went to his homestead where he was trained and I met his teacher. And before I could even enter the graduation, um, she asked me to come sit with her and um, on the ground, of course. And I was bowing and, and being respectful. And she said, <clears throat> I've got a bone. I said, no, no, no. She said, I've got something. Where is it? I was just going, and what is it? I'm going, I don't. I said, it's a bone. She says, correct. And um, it's right in front of me, but I couldn't see it. And she laughed and she, she, she had a long dress on. She opened up a fold of her dress and took out the bone that was right in front of me. So that was the pre-graduation test. And in front of the community that is drumming away, you are asked to enter trance states over the three days and they hide objects. And your teacher doesn't know it. So it's a double blind, you know, so, so they don't cheat and tell you. So um, yeah, I needed to find objects through my trance. Um, they were hidden in certain corners of a hut or were buried in the ground. And they were quite skeptical that a white person could do this. So when I first found it, they didn't believe me. They thought I must have cheated. <laughs> they made me do it again, which anyway, so it was scary because, you know, as you know, entering translate is not something you can just switch on and off. I was quite concerned with, you know, I, I wasn't sure if I'd make it, you know, so, um, but, I, but I believe that's a very common experience. Um, and uh, so it was, so that's how it happened. And there is a, and, and, the, and also during my time while I was, um, I had lost contact with my teacher. I had gone to other Zangoma just for readings, just for fun and just to see what they say. And many a time they said, no, you need to become a Zangoma. And I thought, ah, oh, you know, and so it seemed to have been verified by others who did not know my teacher at all. So that was part of how I entered into that tradition. And when I asked my teacher once, why do you, you know, I mean, it's a bit strange having a white person. What, what's that, you know, what was that about? And he just laconically said to me, and the ancestors aren't racist. You know, that shut me up. <laughs> you know, that just close down that argument <clears throat> yeah exactly um, the ancestors don't have those divides that we've created exactly you know so i he was um i think also what i appreciated about him he was you know he was um he was the chairperson of his local communist party uh group he he was Shangan, so he believed that your lineage or ancestors is both female and male, and hence he believed it was a softer path or both integrating male and female parts. <clears throat> and uh, and whereas other tribes like the Nguni, uh, the Zulu, and the Kosa, the patriarchal line comes through very powerfully, and they are understood at least by Shangam, to be also more aggressive and more, you know, so he, that was interesting. So there are differences in the way the training happens. Um, he felt, you know, there were some trainings that weren't good enough. It's just like in psychoanalysis. <laughs> There's some schools that are very strict, others are more relaxed. And so, 
it's uh, that's why I think kind of circling back to the engagement, just like with a therapeutic alliance, the client tests the uh, the shaman to see if a connection is real, whether this person can see things or hear things or notice things and read things. So that's something that is uh, part of that, and it, and your graduation is is seen as that. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, Absolutely, it makes sense. And I also, okay. I also love this point, though, that I think it's important to make of trusting, you know, the shaman, trusting people to make these decisions. Like he, you know, he channeled or knew that, That's you, right. that you were to become a Samgoma. Whereas yeah. like, uh, my friend Genesis, you know, went to Benin and was initiated by Vudan elders there. Mm -hmm. And you know, some people that I know back in America were like, oh, that's the appropriation of this other culture, but it, it's the elders' decision or the ancestors' exactly. decision that the elders recognize yes. that this person is to be initiated into this. And yeah. you know, it's this kind of opposite sort of racism or like uh, yes. look, looking yes. down on another culture that they, that they don't know <clears throat> who belongs there and who doesn't, you know, like as if we could just go and appropriate their culture uh, because we yeah. decided to, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Look, and for me, it was a bit odd because I was steeped in, you know, at that time in structural Marxism and in racism and, you know, I belonged to a very anti-apartheid um, or uh, university, my lecturers were feminists, fantastic, you know, and, and we were just grappling with question like, is psychoanalysis even relevant for black people? You know, it's in our work with the trauma that at that time, just before the, um, uh, the you know, Mandela got elected, we learned that maybe, yes, it may be incredibly bad, and that our clients valued it, you know, that approach, the symbolic approach, the ability to reflect on conflicts and defenses. And so it's it's not so simple. And you're right, of course, the concern of appropriation, but it's not my choice to become a Zangoma. That's <laughs> not so simple. Um, and that's why, thank you for raising that, because I think <clears throat> that's why even if in the, within their own tradition, people get dragged into this profession rather than move in and want to take it. It's too hard. It costs a lot of money usually. And it is a life that is outside of the ordinary. So many people don't want that. You are never, you're never going to belong in the same way. And that's true for psychanalysts too. You work unbelievably hard. It costs a lot of money. And you, you know, sit in a little room and talking to people and your life is never ordinary and you don't belong in the same way you can't talk about your work your successes and your failures <laughs> you can't you know so it's <clears throat> excuse me so it's something that isn't actually sought out in the traditional aspect as some glorious path no it is a hard path it is a painful part and due to the initiation uh, crisis or if you wish the spiritual emergency it is, it is usually uh, initiated through pain, through growth, through cleansing, through um, often psychotic experience for some, physical illnesses for others, um, uh, hardship. So the, the notion that you could just walk in and appropriate, I have to say that would be a strange view, at least in the Zangoma tradition, but it's really good that you bring that up because I think it's it takes away the power of at least in my tradition Goma to ch to to channel and to be open to other dynamics that where these things don't matter. It's our small life that makes that important. Yeah, exactly, um, and that's a really good point as well. Um, like this idea that some people do go through these spiritual emergencies. And sometimes the psychotic episodes or physical illnesses and, you know, the differences between cultures who are aware of that, that people go through these yes. experiences and have a context for it to help people work through them and maybe, yes. uh, you know, evolve <clears throat> into a healer yeah. or something. 
versus yeah. the culture like the, yeah. the western dominant medical culture that just pathologizes it and doesn't yeah. recognize it yeah. as part of the human experience for a lot of people yeah and i think that's been a lot of my work um is the interface of spirituality or culture and the clinical and and equally in a discerning way, you know, so for example, I was working with one <clears throat> Maori psychiatric nurse that we got on very well with, and we, we sometimes took clients together, worked with them together, and, um, you know, we would sometimes do very strong boundary DBT, you know, dialectical behavior therapy stuff, because we had high risk people, and we would sometimes do cultural processes. And we were able to sometimes say, yes, that person's going through a spiritual measurement, that person as well. That person thinks she is, but isn't. Um, that one was. So it's to begin to understand that actually in many cultures, in some not, but there is some discernment on this. So for example, in, in the Zangoma tradition, um, Ukutwasa is the initiation illness that will, you know, where you can hear voices, you can feel sick, you feel you can get depressed. And then you have Omofamiana, uh, um, which is the illness, there's the possession of beings or, that equally create psychosis and um, and unwellness and depression. But this treatment is different. One requires healing and a cure. The other one requires healing and training. So the ukutwasa requires healing and, and training so that you master those voices to serve the community. And that's what it is about. This is about service. This is about serving. And your trance states are not there to be flashy or amazing it's actually very pragmatic where's the medicine to get that to heal that patient's kidney who's coming in tomorrow you know that's the kind of stuff not an any kind of weird wonderful searching for the ultimate way so for many it is hard work so and same as for psychoanalysis I also like that um, your point earlier as well, even with patients who are like psychotic, like really psychotic. Yeah. Um, yes. If you listen to people speak about it, you can make sense of it or where it came Absolutely. from and like yes. learn how to treat it or how to yeah. help them work through it. Yeah. Because um, I was, when I was in my early 20s, I had a friend, a close friend whose mother was schizophrenic. And she lived in the house with him because uh, when she was younger, when he was younger, she was medicated and um, also hospitalized often. But when he was a teenager, when he was an adolescent, he got very like, you know, don't medicate my mom. She should be able to be who she is and that sort of thing. So he like was supporting her and like being in the house and, and he basically took care of her until he passed away. Um, but when I, since I spent so much time there, because we were such good friends and lived near each other, um, I got to know her really well. And she was always, always, always speaking um, in these kind of run-on sentences that you at first didn't make any sense. But if you spent enough time with her, I started realizing yeah. that she actually had like these four different storylines going on that were like these four different traumatic experiences that she had had. And she would like literally speak like one sentence in like this setting and then one from this story or timeline, then one oh, from this and one from this and was kind of going in this loop. And so if you like heard every fourth sentence was this story, then you could like hear where that story is going and every fourth sentence was this story. Yeah. And after a while, it just, it just like I got used to it and she just made perfect sense because I understood what she was doing all the time. Um, perfect. And like, you know, she, she couldn't function in a day-to-day -day yeah. societal way. Yeah. But like she was living at home and, and it did make sense. And then when you understood what these traumatic experiences were, you could see where she kind of got unraveled there. Deborah Lamshire is an expert voice hearer. And um, we both actually gave a talk on how, um, you know, she mastered her voices and how a shaman Zangoma masters their voices and the amazing similarities because ultimately 
It's going to be about your relationship with the voices. The aim is not to quieten the voices, which is often the psychiatric path, or to annihilate them, but to create a relationship with them and to begin to listen to them and see what value you can gain from them, what the emotional content is. And it's the same for the training as a Sangoma, when you, you when you're a Twasa, an apprentice, um, one of my uh, people I interviewed said it beautifully, Pauline, she said that the aim of the training is actually to have a healthy, equal relationship with the ancestors so they don't dominate you, nor do you dominate them. And that there will be times you say, look, not today, or I'm in the bus at the moment, I can't talk to you, but we will engage in a respectful connection. And in some ways you started unpicking with this person the forced traumatic stories that were circulating. And if she could engage with that in a way that might have been here or not, I don't know. But Deborah and I have spoken about this at um, conferences. And I think there's something to be said about approaching these experiences, these phenomena, let's call it that, because that takes away the pathologizing if they're difficult, and they are as a twasa, you know, you hear things, you get scared, or for some it's traumatizing, and due to trauma, um, we know that trauma um, allows, uh, gives people the ability to dissociate, which then means that if you train that up, your ability to shift consciousness is, is already um, set up, if you wish. That's why, you know, um, many mediums or shamans often have stories of trauma uh, the ability to dissociate is is there not always but sometimes and so for us equally just like with used to find meaning in the voice but then to engage relationally with them whether you call it an internal object or not maybe doesn't matter um, but it's how do you engage with it meaningfully and and here's where i think where i've often said we have the terrible voice of psychosis on the one hand, we have the voices that people are hearing that are non-threatening, it's about 10 to 15% or five to 15% of the, of the so-called normal populace actually hears voices, but they don't are not bothered by it. But what we're not accepting in the Western world of psychology or so is that there's another level of mastery where the voices you hear function to create knowledge that is either to do with healing or to access information. And that part is missing still in the psychological understanding. So voices could, the mastery of that process um, is something we don't acknowledge yet, officially. I no, I love that. And I think maybe what you said earlier about um, thinking of think, waking life more as a dream, you know, yeah. working in it like, like you would work with a dream, maybe that kind of yeah. way of thinking could help shift that a bit. We could yes. think of it as a lucid dream. We have a little more control. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so what you bring up, that's beautiful. So when I talk to psychoanalysts about lucid dreams, many have no clue what that is. No. But I talk to shamans, they know immediately what I'm talking about. And it's because there is no training. I think there is one footnote in... Um, Freud's interpretation of dreams in that colossal work on lucid dreams, which he believes is just the ego taking control of the dream. That might be so, but it misses the point of what you can do with a lucid dream and how you can access ancestors or information to heal yourself or others or whatever. So thank you for that. That's a, that's a very good, another good example where shamans have a skill set of shifting conscience within dreams Whereas in psychoanalysis, it's merely seen as a passive process. Mm -hmm. um, so unfortunately, closes for many closes the door to many other states of awareness, which is a pity. Um, but that's, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's great. And I'm wondering too, now that, I mean, now even in main, more mainstream psychoanalysis, people are acknowledging transgenerational transmission of trauma. Yeah. And I'm also yes. hoping yes. that that will be like a connect with yeah. like ancestors and ancestor work because now there seems to be more and more mainstream. Yes. 
Uh, I, I agree that intergenerational uh, trauma must open up the problematic notion that pain can travel through us. And maybe there are, you know, so for example, there might be some suggestion of genetic changes due to epigenetics. So if, if I have experienced severe trauma, what does it do to my genes, which then get propagated through children? So there are some queries, you know, interesting developments maybe. And that is true for our ancestors, you know, that they, the voices of our ancestors, um, you're right, uh, maybe it's one way that they may become accepted or acceptable. But anyway, I think, you know, in terms of psychoanalysis, the unconscious would hold our ancestors in some degree or form. And I suppose some shamans use them more consciously, relationally, to access information, but they get tested. So my uh, teacher would say, so I asked him one day, I says, look, how do you know that the voices you hear or the ancestors you hear are not talking nonsense? And, you know, how would you know that? He says, oh, that's easy. We just test them. <laughs> and that kind of is exactly the point. It's not a naive belief. This is not a religion. This is not a, a claim. This is verified so if an ancestor tells me there's a certain medicine under that tree and it isn't there my teacher told me to really speak to that ancestor say that's not good enough you need to give me good information or if the information is vague i need to sharpen it by demanding more details you know so there's this very strong push of verification to those ancestors that they need to be specific enough to give information and that's where my experience was that this is not about religion only or belief. This is something more interesting. Um, you know, just like when you when you listen to her to the stories, you could unpick that actually there was some very real traumatic events going on here, but it was your capacity to be specifically listening for it that unpacked this event. This is trauma induced, likely or various traumas, you know, the, the story you talked about. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And, and uh, I think it's a good point as well. Um, you know, Western medicine is like this, this old in far, as far as human history goes and thinks it's like yeah. the end all be all and says that all these things are not scientific, but actually these practices are often like thousands of years old and passed over exactly. generations. And people have exactly. tested and retested and refined the practices yeah, exactly. over a, a long time. Yeah. You know, and I also think there are some that are better at this than others. There are some traditions that don't do so well. So, for example, you know, I think it's worth, you know, absolutely, I think the Chinese tradition of martial arts, and there's a phenomenal development in the world that, you know, they've done really well in. And shamans have done really well with certain states of consciousness. But not all of them and equally so it, I don't want in any way to lose my sense of discernment in this to acknowledge that there are people who do this better and some who may do this for other reasons you know just like with everything just like with everything that's exactly so it's but this is why for me my interest in these states is not as a belief as something that I have to accept quite the contrary you know so if a Zangoma sits and throws the bones and talks and doesn't get it then I have the right to take my money and leave and that is the tradition that a client can take their money and go if you don't if you don't get it because it needs to be verified and hence the silence of the client and you know it's hard when you suddenly see people sitting in front of you stone-faced just like psychoanalysts sit there <laughs> quietly waiting for you, you know, and, you know, some days you on and some days you're not so on. It's interesting, <laughs> you know, and so how do you read it? And there's, you know, so we get, but it's literally like, you need to be able to say, no, I came here for your right knee. You've come here because your right knee is hurting. And they're just sitting, you can't always see that. You know, or it's about a relationship difficulty, or it's about, um, you know, so even though you may, uh, if you're very skilled observers, pick up a lot, you know, if somebody is in pain, yeah, that's obvious, but the expectation is to be quite uh, detailed, but it's, 
you know, and there will be others who better. And, and by the way, I also want to add that um, in my training, my teacher would always say, look, some people have very powerful ancestors, some don't. We don't know why. The other thing is some people are more skilled with divination, some are skilled with the herbs, some are skilled with dancing, as you would call it. Yeah, people are different. And, and, and this is also true for psychiatrists and for us. <clears throat> you know, we are different and therefore the work will be different. And I think that's helpful to hold as well. They're not all equal. That's a good point. So what are you working on now, Ingo? Oh, I don't know. I'm working on... Um, I'm, I've been asked to edit a book on culture and psychosis. So looking on the interpretation of, you know, from different areas of the world, but also problematizing our notion of what psychosis is, you know. Um, uh, so for example, we just <clears throat> did a webinar. I was lucky enough to moderate three amazing people and through racism and psychosis. And it just unpacked that the notion of psychosis is determined by a racist stance and structure and is, you know, the treatment of it is determined as well. You know, so there are, there are issues to unpack that madness is constructed and different cultures will construct it differently. And I'm going to write a chapter on how in the shamanic tradition, you know, madness is viewed differently and what else they could be so that's just so that's what i'm working on at the moment yeah cool. is there anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap up oh look if anybody wants to um see any writing or stuff i've done or to just go to youtube and or google and just go and write type in my name and stuff will come up on culture or shamanic or clinical parapsychology or stuff like that so it's all there so yeah and i'll have to plug our paper we wrote a paper together yes. on psychoanalytic yes. and shamanic states and transitional yes. and that's in the fenris wolf eight so i'll put a link to yes that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I've also written on for, for the for an art magazine, an African art magazine on the aesthetics of trance states, how you have visions and voices and the aesthetics of it. So I've been quite curious about that. But, but these are all various interests I have, and people will find them on the net and see if it if, if it resonates with them to go and explore. Perfect. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Ingo Lambrecht. For more, you can check out his papers in the Fenris Wolf, Volumes 8 and 9, and also read his book, Sangoma Trance States. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. song, Bring Forth Our Ancestors, Embrace Ourselves, from the album Follow My Voice, with Per Olund, available at Bandcamp and in limited edition CD form from Highbrow Lowlife, Entrepart Editions. Enjoy. Sometimes I bring forth our ancestors, those who went before us, carry out so much brutality, I don't think 
transformed. Crossing places, seeking the deep roots and connections where we surge forth. Carry out so much brutality, I don't think transformed. Let us seek not escape, but embrace ourselves. The reports of thee at the end of his book tell us of his personal circumstances, of the new age and the immortalist corporate loss of physical culture in the occult and remembered was once identical to the otherworldly or inhuman. Carry out so much brutality I don't think transformed. I cannot speculate on a better world is possible. Carry out so much brutality. I don't think transformed. We are instead deep and do embody mortality. Live for all to see. 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 Live for all to see.